Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And it's Saturday. Once again, we are venturing down into the vault, this time to come back on part two of the episode that we started last Saturday, that we reran from December 2015. This is going to be an episode that aired on December 3rd, 2015, called Better Living Through Tetris. More colored blocks rushing out of the void of the vault to, to heal us. Which do you think is the most healing of the Tetris shapes? Is it is it the L? Is it the T? No, no, it's the the, the straight line of four blocks. Oh, because yeah. that's the that's the, the money block. That's the one that allows you to get that that wonderful four rows uh, eliminated at one time. Kaching, yeah, money. All right. Without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome to stuff to blow your mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today's episode is part two of a two-part episode about the science of Tetris. Really, the science of Tetris, but also the history and philosophy of Tetris. Uh, Because, as I said in the last episode, I have a very, very strong intuition that Tetris is not just an invented artifact, uh, the work of human hands and human minds, but is somehow a natural, fundamental outgrowth of the phantasmagorical blood magic of the universe. (laughs) It comes from the cosmos itself. It's not just something we made. It was here. And in 1984, the creator of Tetris, Alexei Pajitnov, discovered it. (laughs) I like that, the idea of discovering Tetris as this uh, this sort of uh, dimension of of mathematical perfection yeah. underlying reality. Uh, totally. In, in the last episode, we, we talked a little bit about that, about where Tetris came from and its influences, and then about the Tetris effect, this, uh, this syndrome, this uh, experience commonly reported by Tetris players where, they, uh, where it sort of takes over their minds. They see Tetris in everything throughout the world. They hallucinate it. They dream about it. And we talked about some possible explanations for that, as well as how Tetris skills develop in the brain and the interesting fact that uh, that people who cannot form episodic memories can still form hallucination recall for Tetris that counterintuitively expert Tetris players use less brain energy than novice Tetris players at higher levels of play. Uh, So there's a lot that's very fascinating and weird and mysterious about the game Tetris itself. But today we wanted to talk about how some of the science of Tetris uh, how it works as a game and how Tetris can be used to solve problems in the real world. Yeah, and a lot of this, uh, the, the first uh, portion of this episode, a lot of it relates to just why do we love it so? Why is it so satisfying to play Tetris? Yeah. Um, and yeah. Uh, and the, the, uh, the, the science behind this is uh, it's a lot more interesting than, than you might think. It's, it, it goes pretty deep into just how we think and how we process the world. Absolutely. So if you haven't listened to part one, go back, listen to part one uh, first, and then come and, and join us again here where we will continue the cosmic journey of Tetris and clear those lines again. And again, and again. <laughs> All right, so why do we love Tetris? Why do we play it so much? Why did it have such an impact to begin with? Well, we should back up and ask why we play any game so much. Why do we love any game? I mean, th- as we observed in the last episode, there there's a difference 
between a really good game and a not so good game. And it's not just, I mean, these days a lot of people might refer to things because of the complexity of games on newer generations mm-hmm. of things like graphics and story and, you know, because you have these action adventure games that are, that are so complex and all that. There's more sense but, that you're immersing yourself in a, a, an unreal world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, ignoring all that and just getting back to the basics of simple types of games and gameplay, puzzle games, uh, playing Tetris versus playing, I don't know, what's another early puzzle game? The Texas Chainsaw Massacre video game on the Atari <laughs> 2600, uh, which did really exist. Don't don't bother looking at it. You'll just get sad. Yeah, why, did, why, did, why are these games so... Why don't we immerse ourselves in them? How does this work? One idea that seems pretty strongly supported is that very rewarding and enjoyable gameplay and game mechanics come from this psychological process that's been described uh, under the term cognitive flow. Flow. Yeah, yeah. At, at heart, any good game is tapping into cognitive flow. Uh, as uh, Sean Barron po- uh, broke down in a 2012 uh, uh, Gamma Sutra article, uh, it breaks down as follows. And Tetris boils this down perfectly uh, to a highly concentrated mental gaming experience. You have concrete goals and manageable rules, plus goals that fit player capabilities, plus clear and timely feedback, plus an elimination of distractions, and this equals cognitive flow. Yeah, so it's a game essentially where you understand how to play, mm-hmm. you can play, you have the skill, It's yet it's challenging enough that it's not boring. You're constantly getting feedback on how well you're doing, and there's not extraneous stuff going on. Right. It's just perfect focus, zeroing in on a perfect brain-consuming task, that is just challenging enough to always keep you engaged. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that cognitive flow is just a, 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 a result of gaming experience. Oh, no, yeah. We flow. encounter it in our daily lives, be it in your work, if you're lucky, or in, you know, in your hobbies, or yeah. even in just random chores that you have down uh, you know, skill-wise. Um, and the term itself comes from psychologist uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, the Hungarian psychology professor who pioneered the study of cognitive flow. I, I like this guy's research. I've read about it before, and it's interesting to me because this is what people would, I think, often call positive psychology. Mm-hmm. So much of what is studied in psychology or psychiatry deals with uh, people who are having less than optimal experiences. Right. And this is an attempt to study, well, what's going on when humans are just really at their peak mental experience, when they're feeling great, when things are going well inside their heads, what's happening there? And and a thing he identified is that a, a key to a sort of happy existence or a happy experience is this process of flow. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, you know, it's interesting looking back to the previous episode where uh, the stick gold study started off and ended up getting into the Tetris area by considering people who engaged in um, in rock climbing, and then yeah. they would perceive rock climbing later. Uh, and, and overall, his study was about looking at people who engage in novel physical or mental activities for extended periods of time and how they often experience a, an hallucinatory replay of the activity. Yeah. And with the Csikszentmihalyi, we see rock climbing come up again because as an avid rock climber, that's where he first took note 
of this special feeling in his own experience uh, that he got while inching his way up a challenging rock face. He began thinking about it in terms uh, of his uh, psychology studies. And he laid it out pretty much as we've been discussing, that flow is about having set goals, having uh, a self-contained universe. Uh, you especially see this in gaming, right, where there are uh, something like Tetris, the rules, the space, it's all pretty well defined. Yeah. There's there's less uh, ambiguity. You get immediate feedback if you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. contains a manageable challenge. It's hard, but you can do it. Sense of control over the situation, at uh -huh. least until you reach the upper levels. Uh, and you're completely involved in what you're doing. Yeah. And so this results in a, a sense of ecstasy, uh, great inner clarity, uh, a confidence that, uh, that what you're doing is doable and then you have the skills to tackle it, a sense of serenity, a sense of timelessness, and intrinsic motivation to yeah. keep going. It becomes fun in itself. I mean, there's no reason you have to play Tetris. Yeah. You know, nobody nobody's giving you uh, tangible rewards or punishments based on how many lines you clear. But it becomes intrinsically motivating. There's something mm -hmm. about the activity itself that's pleasing enough that you have to go on. And it shuts down the chatter in your brain. It shuts down that uh, default uh, mode network, uh, all those little voices and that are worrying about the, the, the past or the future. It all goes dull as your brain uh, tackles the problem at hand, be it climbing a, uh, a rock, working on an article, mowing the yard, or uh -huh. playing Tetris. Yeah, totally. So if you look at all of the conditions that must be present to create the optimal sense of flow, I, I think Tetris is almost perfectly designed to satisfy them. Like, it's hard to think of a cleaner distillation of exactly what those conditions are. Yeah. The clear goals, stack them clear lines. Manageable rules, it's absolutely clear what's going on in Tetris. Uh, Tetris adjusts itself to your capabilities, so at the beginning it's easy. Uh, if you are a very good player, you can move up to higher difficulties pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, it gives you an adjustment period, but it, 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 the difficulty changes and tracks with you as you play. You know, As you go up higher, you get farther. It gets harder and more challenging. There's feedback and that you can... Like the music is an interesting feedback thing in Texas. Texas. I say Texas again in Tetris. Uh, as you keep stacking higher, I don't know if you remember it gets faster this. And faster, the music yeah. gets faster. It's letting you know, oh, okay. <laughs> and, and of course, there's very obvious visual feedback. You know, you it, you can clearly see as you're getting toward the ceiling of the screen, this is not what you want. And what is there that's extraneous? I mean, nothing. <laughs> it's it's all there. And uh, and of course, it works even better if you can just. Uh, sort of like put a black blanket over your head and tape your eyes directly to the Tetris screen so that nobody can walk in and say like, hey, there's a fire, you need to evacuate the building. <laughs> I mean, you, you just, you're there, you're in the zone. But there are some other theories we've come across that uh, that help explain exactly why Tetris feels like such a perfect game for our brains. And one of the ones I wanted to mention uh, was actually uh, something I saw alluded to in a BrainCraft video. Uh, some of our Periscope followers, we were talking to them last Friday, and we 
mentioned that we were going to do this episode, and they said, "Oh, you should watch the Braincraft video." So they're, uh, I think they're PBS. Yeah, PBS right? is behind yeah. it. Uh, I watched this as well; it was entertaining. Yeah, and so they, uh, but they mentioned something called the Zygarnik effect in reference to Tetris. So, what is the deal with this? Okay, so the Zygarnik effect comes to us uh, again. We look to uh, to Soviet thinking here. It comes from Soviet uh, psychologist and psychiatrist Bluma Wolfovna Zygarnik. Uh, she lived from 1900 to 1988, and she first observed this in the 1920s. Um, and uh, it basically boils down to this. It's the, it's the psychological tendency for us to remember incomplete or interrupted tasks better than complete ones. Um, and Tetris, of course, to tie that in, is a continuous stream of incomplete tasks. Yeah. A constant sense of achievement, but also... A constantly unachieved finish. As we mentioned in the previous episode, there's no, hey, you won screen in Tetris. It just keeps getting harder and harder and harder until yeah. you perish. And, of course, it's made up of lots of little individual incomplete tasks, right? Yeah. Because every time there's a gap in a row in Tetris, that's a little thing that there's a little flag in your brain that says, I need to go back and fix that. Right. And I'll get there eventually. So it's a one huge incomplete task forever being incomplete made up of an infinite number of incomplete tasks. Uh, it's almost as if this was in mind when it was designed. Yeah. So the Zagarnik effect, of course, plays into the typical human drive to finish what we started, to see yeah. things through to the finish, and the associative, uh, associated uh, negative psychological ramifications of doing the opposite, yeah. you know, where you're, you're haunted by that model airplane you never finished or that novel that you have half completed or, you know, or whatever chores around the house are in, in God knows when you have a house, there's always some something that's not quite finished uh -huh. about everything and how those just continue to stick in your mind. Um, there's a, one uh, explanation of the Zygarnik effect that I found that I thought was pretty, um, pretty nice. It comes from uh, Roy uh, Baumeister and Brad Bushman in their 2008 textbook, Social Psychology and Human Nature. They said the Zygarnik effect is a tendency to experience automatic, intrusive thoughts about a goal that one has pursued, but the pursuit of which has been interrupted. That is, if you start working toward a goal and fail to get there, thoughts about that goal will keep popping into your mind while you are doing other things, as if to remind you to get back on track and finish reaching that goal. So not only is this something that... Uh is related to the motivation we have to keep playing Tetris, but it also might sort of explain what we talked about in the previous episode, uh, because this mentions intrusive thoughts yes. about the incomplete task. So uh, in the last episode, we talked about the Tetris effect where people experience dreams and hallucinations about Tetris. If Tetris is never finished, mm -hmm. yet it's always this intrinsically motivating task that remains incomplete in the mind it kind of makes sense through this uh, method that it would keep jumping up into, into your thoughts. Yeah, yeah, I think it plays nicely into, uh, in, into just trying to figure out the Tetris syndrome, uh, the Tetris effect in general. Yeah. And, there, and there's a broader lesson here, though, that applies well beyond games, and that is that uh, students, be, it a, be you an official student or just somebody studying up on something in your life, uh, it pays to suspend your studies, to take a break, to come back to it, and not try to wipe it all out in one massive cramming session. Absolutely. I find this to be extremely useful in my own work. So if I'm trying to uh, to think clearly about uh, maybe an episode I'm researching or mm -hmm. something like that, I find it's way more useful to uh, to start on it 
before I, I I end work for one day. So if it's, you know, 5.30 and I, I'm trying to quit work for the day <laughs> um, it, and I'm at the end of one task, it's better to do 10% of the next task and then come back to it the next day. Uh, my thoughts about it are going to be a lot clearer than to break from work in between when tasks are concluded and when the next one starts. Yeah, and generally also if you have some sleep in between, yeah. then you're you're getting to consolidate those memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that working is working in your favor as well. But also it's pointed out a lot that if you, if the task is intimidating, just start it. Because if you just start it, then you get to benefit from the Zygarnik effect, because yeah. that effect is going to be in play to encourage you to come back and work more on it. So yeah. beginnings are difficult, but begin and then take a break and then come back. Yeah, this isn't going to become the self-help show, but but try that one at least. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, I highly advocate that strategy. Get it started. It'll be easier. Uh, another thing that is, um, I can't remember exactly where I came across this, but I feel like it was in... Uh, it was in something that was linked to from that BrainCraft video. But but anyway, however I came across this, another thing that I saw referenced uh, with regard to Tetris is the idea of epistemic action. And I had actually never heard about this phenomenon before, but I it turned out to be pretty interesting. So in 1994, David Kirsch and Paul Maglio published a paper in Cognitive Science called on distinguishing epistemic and pragmatic action. And Kirsch and Maglio make the distinction between two different kinds of actions that a person can perform. So you've got pragmatic action, and this is one, it's an external action that changes something in the external world in furtherance of you achieving a goal. So if you are stranded on a tiny island and starving, Throwing a rock at a seagull would be a pragmatic action to unlock that seagull's delicious meat. Okay. Uh, or you could make a much smaller action. You could, say, press a button while playing Tetris to move a Tetris piece with the goal of actually moving it to the spot where you want to place it. You're just doing an action to reach a goal. But then they distinguish this from a different kind of action, a different kind of external action, which is what they call epistemic action. And this is... making a change to the world in order to simplify a problem-solving task. So imagine you, you remember those spot the difference puzzles in children's books? You know what I'm talking about? They'll show you two pictures of a scene. Oh, yes. One's Mickey Mouse, you know, roller skating, and the next one's Mickey Mouse roller skating, but the clock hands are pointing to a different time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And something like that. And let's say you've got a children's workbook with, with two of these on different pages, um, and what you do is you tear out one of the pages and then hold the pictures right next to each other. That would be an epistemic action because there what you're doing is an action that is really designed to change the nature of a problem inside your head to simplify the, the task. So when you see them next to each other or maybe you um, lay them on top of each other and hold it up to a light to see what's different in the two pages you're using external action to reduce the mental complexity of a task. And they looked at Tetris in this paper, actually, and and pointed out how experienced Tetris players use epistemic action in Tetris. And, And this is the way it works. You've got a block falling down and you want to fit it in. And instead of doing all the work of flipping the block around in your head to see where it would fit, the players 
flip it. They physically flip it, plus press the button to flip it to offload some of the cognitive uh, work required to see where it would fit. So by visually seeing exactly uh, what the block looks like in all its orientations, you can see, okay, here's exactly where it would fit without having to flip it in your mind, thus freeing up some mental resources to look at what's the next block huh. in the uh, in the preview bar. So So essentially it is using physical action to make mental work easier. They say epistemic action can be used to reduce the memory involved in a mental computation. Uh, it can be used to reduce the number of steps involved in completing a mental computation, or it can be used to reduce the probability of error in a mental computation. Um, and so if you follow this idea, you can conclude that when you play Tetris, it's, again, kind of a perfect back and forth between body and mind. It creates a constant flowing rapid feedback cooperation between mental problem solving and then this external epistemic action. You use the body to simpl simplify a problem. You press the button, flip the block, see where it would fit. Then you use your mind to solve the problem. Then you use the body again to execute the solution, and you just keep going back and forth on repeat. All right, so once again we see a manner in which Tetris illuminates how our brain works. Yeah. And we've discussed the, the just almost perfect way that Tetris captures our mind. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to explore some uh, some of the applications that uh, that scientists have, have explored, have actually looked into, and some some very real possibilities for Tetris as a as a treatment option for a few different uh, ailments. All right, we're back. Okay, so, Robert, we've talked about the Tetris cure. Yeah. <laughs> what can you cure with Tetris, potentially at least? Uh, because I, I was quite surprised to see some of this research, but once I read into it, it started to make a lot of sense to me that you could potentially use Tetris in maybe in place of drugs or other types of therapies in lots of scenarios. Yeah, because we've, uh, again, just think back to all the ways we've discussed uh, in which Tetris captures your mind, yeah. how it plays into uh, two different modes of memory, mm -hmm. um, how it... Uh, it's got the skeleton key to a deep yeah. part of your brain. Yeah, it, it, it's involved in flow state. It really reminds me of a lot of what one is setting to do, set out to do with meditation and yoga to, to a certain extent, uh -huh. except... Uh, you kind of have a leg up on it by it being this fun, engaging game as opposed to uh, to something that takes a little more deliberate mental or physical force. Okay, so let's imagine that I am a two-packs-a-day kind of guy, and I'm trying to quit smoking. Okay. Can Tetris help me? Potentially, yes, And which sounds crazy, especially anyone who has you know, first-hand experience with just how... Um, how powerful um, uh, that addiction can be, but uh, we do have some evidence to back it up. This is a new study. This came out uh, August 2015, and it's uh, from a team of psychologists from, from Plymouth University and Queensland University of Technology in Australia. So this is how it, uh, how it went down. Uh, they got together 31 participants, ages 18 through 27, and uh, they were monitored for levels of craving, and also prompted seven times a day to report their cravings. 
15 of these individuals, so roughly half, were required to play three minutes of Tetris before reporting their craving levels. Okay. So it's kind of like you, you have problems with different cravings for the different things, and somebody's going to call you and ask how you're doing with those cravings, but half of the group get to play Tetris first before they're quizzed on it. Uh-huh. So cravings were recorded in 30% of occasions, most commonly for food and non-alcoholic drinks, uh, which were reported on nearly two-thirds of those occasions. So 21% of the cravings were for drug-related uh, uh, instances, and this included coffee, cigarettes, wine, and beer. And spice. Yeah, and <laughs> spice. 16% were for miscellaneous activities such as sleeping, playing video games, what? Which, which I found uh, <laughs> interesting. Socializing with friends and sexual intercourse. Okay. Food cravings tended to be slightly weaker than those in other categories, but they cl- uh, claim this is the first demonstration that cognitive interference, again, that's Tetris coming into your life, captivating your brain, shutting out everything else, cognitive interference can be used outside the lab to reduce cravings for substances and activities other than eating. Okay. So, in this, we could see how Tetris or some variation of Tetris, some variation of a, you know, a, a, of a, of a puzzle-solving game, could be used as a support tool for curbing addictions. Now, not the again, not the primary tool, yeah. but a, but an additional tool. So I'm sure that they didn't find that that it would completely eliminate cravings. But but did they have an estimate for by how much the cravings were reduced? Yeah, by approximately one fifth. Okay, so. Yeah. I mean that that's you you could look at that as small or you could look at that as big. I mean if if all it takes is Tetris and you don't have to, you know, uh th- this is without some other kind of like drug interference or major behavioral therapy or anything. Yeah, you I mean you're trying to curb this addiction, so any tool at your disposal that uh that put p- gives you an advantage is certainly worth taking up. So yeah, I could see this being again a part of one's treatment, certainly uh-huh. not the only part of one's treatment. But it could help. It could certainly help, yeah. I, I wonder the extent to which Tetris is special here. Like, how would this compare to other video games? I feel like Tetris is kind of special because yeah. I mean, we haven't even I feel really... the same way, Robert. Because <laughs> <laughs> we haven't really touched on this as much. This is something I find in gaming in general these days, especially um, with a, a three-and-a-half-year-old running around in my life, is that Blessed is the game that can be enjoyed in very small um, allotments of time. Yes, you know? true. Tetris is, is perfect for that. It, it is one of them. I Just the other day when we were preparing for this episode where I was doing some research, I decided to play a little bit of Tetris. And I several different times I played for maybe three to five minutes. And, oh, man, it, that was a session. Yeah. You, you can't have a three to five minute session of, I don't know, what do people play these days of of uh, Fallout 4? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> these are games that require vast periods of time, vast immersive periods of time, where there's always time for Tetris. Yeah. And, and it's never a situation where I can't play Tetris now. This environment's too distracting. No, you can play Tetris in, in, in a war zone, which is kind of insightful given the next thing we're going to discuss. Yeah, because I think it is time to talk about Tetris and traumatic memory formation. So... A lot of people probably know this, but it's worth explaining a little bit. Sometimes when people have a traumatic experience, they can form a kind of recurrent toxic memory pattern that can cause serious trouble for them after the traumatic incident is over and done with. So you mentioned a a combat zone. Yeah, imagine you're in a combat zone, whether you are a soldier or just a bystander, whatever. 
you're at a place where people are fighting and there's a sudden eruption of gunfire and that leads to intense fear, maybe uh, maybe to personal injury, to the threat on your life, to witnessing uh, the death or injury of others. And this can lead to post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. One of the main symptoms of PTSD is the presence of what are known as flashbacks or these distressing, intrusive memories of the traumatic experience that come rushing into your mind like an irresistible torrent and can have debilitating effects. I mean, obviously, you, you don't want to be, you know, driving the kids to school and suddenly just utterly possessed by memories of the time when somebody shot you in the shoulder. Yeah, I mean, it's the one of the worst moments of your life is suddenly just popping up in your daily in the course of your daily life during what should be the, the best moments of your life at times. Right. So there has been a lot of research into ways of treating PTSD in people who already have it. So some treatment courses involve cognitive therapy, you know, that's going to be talk therapy or exposure therapy, exposing yourself to the problem. Some include drugs like uh, anti-anxiety medications or antidepressants. And there are even some kind of weird and controversial therapies that have been suggested. Like, have you ever read anything about eye movement desensitization and reprocessing or EMDR? No, I don't think I've run across this one yet. Uh, This is where you expose yourself to the traumatic memory. And while you're doing that, you practice specific patterns of eye movement in conjunction with the anxiety inducing thoughts. Uh, this is a side note. I find this last one really fascinating, and I would love to hear from listeners who are psychiatrists or uh, or from people who have practiced this method personally. I don't know. Do you all think there's validity to it? I've read what seem to be credible scientists saying that there is empirical research to show that this works, but I've also read that it's controversial. It, it sounds like one of those weird scientific discoveries that might be too good to be true, like you can really have an effect just by moving your eyeballs around? It remind, there are some uh, yogic uh, meditation techniques that involved uh, the movement of your eyes. and uh, huh. the, I haven't played around with them a lot, but it's, it's certainly present there. So I wonder well, if there's a, some connective tissue between the two. Yeah, well, anyway, that's interesting by itself, and I'd love to hear from listeners about it. But anyway, back to the, to the Tetris. Um, what if there were a way... To, all of those things I mentioned before were... Uh, if you already have PTSD, you've already got this traumatic flashback problem. But what if there were a way to inoculate yourself against PTSD before the symptoms begin to take hold? Okay, so this the idea here is that something traumatic has occurred. What can I do to yeah. keep from the, to keep that trauma from taking root in my brain? Yeah, it'd be like if you get bit by a dog with rabies and you immediately go to the hospital for rabies vaccine. Yeah, if you get bit by a zombie and you get somebody to cut your arm off. Yeah, Yeah. so this would be a cognitive vaccine against traumatic memories. So in January 2009, researchers led by Dr. Emily A. Holmes of Oxford University, they published a study on the effects of Tetris on the formation of traumatic or intrusive memories. And it was called, Can Playing the Computer Game Tetris Reduce the Buildup of Flashbacks for Trauma? A Proposal from Cognitive Science. So they had two pieces of knowledge that they were starting with. One of them was, cognitive science suggests that the brain has selective resources with limited capacity. So your brain can't do everything. You can only devote so much energy resource to to a, a limited number of things at a time. And the second fact is the neurobiology of memory suggests a six-hour window to disrupt memory consolidation. 
So the, the you know the, there's this idea that about six hours after a memory takes place is when the window for consolidating that memory in the brain is you know forming that strong recurrent pattern memory. So if you deny the brain the resources it needs to form visuospatial memories during that crucial few hours after the event takes place, could you stop bad memories from consolidating with such great emphasis in the mind? And they tested it. They tested it out by getting 40 volunteers and making them watch Faces of Death, pretty now, much. <laughs> really? Were they no. actually watching Faces? Okay. No. Uh, well, I don't know, actually. They didn't say <laughs> the name of the tape. Uh, they, because they I, were, I re- remember covering this study like way back in the early, like the initial version of this podcast episode with uh, Allison Loudermilk, and I don't remember Faces of Death. But then maybe I overlooked it. No, no, no. no. It, it was it was something like that. They were <laughs> they were showed a film, uh, shown a film full of horrible images uh, designed to s- simulate a traumatic experience. Okay. Quote. All participants viewed a traumatic film consisting of scenes of real injury and death, followed by a 30-minute structured break. (laughs) (laughs) They described the film as a 12-minute film that contained 11 clips of traumatic content, including graphic real scenes of human surgery, fatal road traffic accidents, and drowning. So that's pretty weird. Like a disturbing student film, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, they were all made to watch that tape from The Ring. Um, (laughs) uh, So after viewing the film and taking a a real nice 30-minute break, half of the participants, half of these 40 people, were given nothing to do except sit quietly for 10 minutes. This was a control group. Mm -hmm. And the other half played Tetris for 10 minutes. Pretty simple experiment. Um, Then they checked to see how often members of each group experienced flashbacks during the 10 minutes. No surprise, the people playing Tetris experience fewer flashbacks, but that's not really surprising. They were playing Tetris. Right. Then, here's where it gets interesting. The researchers sent the volunteers away with instructions to keep a diary on how many times they had flashbacks to, to, to the faces of death, basically, over the next week. And the different groups had different rates. They, they found that the people who played Tetris for 10 minutes after watching the film had significantly fewer flashbacks to the the Faces of Death type video and less symptomology consistent with PTSD when they checked back seven days later. Crucially, both groups had equivalently strong voluntary recall of the film. Uh, This is an interesting aspect, too, because they could both remember the film fine. They could remember what they saw uh, it's just that the group that played Tetris had less trouble with the unbidden recurrence of these memories throughout their day-to-day lives. Huh. So, so again, it's not, it's not just a matter of, hey, Tetris distracted them from initially thinking about it. Yes. But Tetris interfered with the brain's uh, codifying of the experiences of traumatic. Yeah, and they concluded from this that it's not just distraction. Like you say, it's something about the visuospatial nature of Tetris. This is something that they call out specifically that Tetris is a visual and spatial or visuospatial task because verbal and other distracting tasks have been demonstrated ineffective before against trauma flashbacks. In some cases, they even intensify them. So in this first uh, study, one of the things they wanted to point out that they were not saying people who already have PTSD can get better by playing Tetris. 
though they speculate this could be a possibility and this gets revisited in a later study. And they were also not suggesting that playing any video game would have the same effect. And they get into that in another experiment in a bit. But uh, just a couple of comments. One of the things is it's hard to test something like the formation of traumatic memories <laughs> leading to PTSD because for obvious ethical reasons, you can't expose somebody to life-shattering trauma for the sake of the experiment. Right. So th the best they could do was show somebody a really disturbing movie. And yeah. even that seems kind of weird. I mean, when you read, like, yes, they were showed the graphic images of death, and then we asked them how troubled they were. No, you could imagine a scenario where, say, a trauma medic rushes out, begins treating the individual who is uh, is down on the ground with, uh, and is wounded, and then passing out Game Boys exactly. to those, stand to those uh, uh, soldiers in their midst. Yeah, that's the other half. It yeah. seems impractical to seek out people who have just been shot or hit by a car or something and then give them Tetris to yeah, play. Yeah, say, hey, play this, see if this helps. Um, Report back. But these findings have been followed up on in, pre in uh, subsequent studies. So the same group did another study in 2010 where they... They attempted to answer the questions, would all games have this effect via distraction or enjoyment, or might some games even be harmful? And then second, would the effects be found if administered several hours post-trauma? Because this first one, it was just Tetris, and they played 30 minutes after they saw the movie. So they essentially repeated the experiment, but uh, instead of just Tetris, they tried Tetris, and then this game called Pub Quiz Machine 2008, um, and... Oh, Sounds horrible. Yeah, I looked up a video of somebody merely playing Pub Quiz 2008 or Pub Quiz Machine 2008 on YouTube, and I think that alone could cause traumatic memories. But uh, but anyway, they had those two, and they they concluded that no, the Pub Quiz did not do as well as Tetris. In fact, they found that the Pub Quiz made the traumatic experience flashbacks more intense. Uh, so if you if you have a traumatic experience, then play Pub Quiz. It's going to be even worse for you. Don't do that. Uh, but Tetris still performed better. And they also found that even four hours after watching the film, Tetris had significant reduction in flashbacks. Because you said there's a six-hour window. Yeah, yeah. So you could wait four hours after the event, play some Tetris, and supposedly this discourages flashbacks. Just another reason to make sure Tetris is on your phone. Uh-huh. Just in case. Now, again, I wonder about Tetris versus non-verbal visual games. So if you're playing Metroid or Shaq-Fu or something, mm -hmm. like, it does, uh, does the game have to provide a certain level of challenge? Is there a difference between the effects on experienced Tetris players and on novices? So there are a lot of questions that haven't been answered yet. Um, but then there was another study from this year, and this is the last one. In psychological science in 2015, a group of researchers, again, including uh, Dr. Uh, Emily A. Holmes, who was on the other studies, uh, published findings that visuospatial game tasks can block traumatic memories even after the memories are already formed. So remember earlier, I was like, well, they weren't saying that you can cure PTSD or not cure, but but help or alleviate some aspects of PTSD just by playing Tetris after it's already formed. Here they found maybe you can do that because what they did is they had people after the memory formation had already taken place recall the memories, so bring up voluntarily in the mind the traumatic memories, and then play Tetris. And they found that this also reduced flashbacks. Huh. Well, that, that makes sense, given the, the nature of memories. Uh, the uh, example I always bring up when we discuss this is that, that every memory in your head is not 
a little stone statue of the event, but a clay uh, statue of the event. And it's uh, it's it's something that can be it's malleable. It can be changed. It can be altered every time you draw it out. Yeah. And there and also when you draw it out, it is susceptible uh, to positive change if it's traumatic. Um, so that would make sense. Yeah. So in all of these studies, they chalk this up to competition for resources in in visual visuospatial uh, conception in the brain, essentially, that they're saying the the disturbing images that come in your flashbacks when you're, you know, remembering that you got shot or hit by a car, or, you know, threatened by a guy with a chainsaw or something, uh, whatever that is that's terrifying you, it's essentially a visual spatial problem in your brain. And if you can, if you can dampen that, if you can just kind of uh, smudge that memory with competition by the part of your brain that you use to solve Tetris puzzles, you significantly weaken the hold it has over you. So anyway, I, I would love to see more research in that area, and uh, it seems very interesting and, and hopefully promising. I mean, uh, if people can get relief from this, I, I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah, totally. So we have one more area of uh, of potential Tetris treatment to discuss here, and it concerns uh, something that's commonly referred to as lazy eye. We're talking about amblyopia here. It's a, a disorder of sight, and it results in decreased vision in an eye that otherwise appears normal uh, or out of uh, proportion to associated uh, structural problems with the eye. So up to 3% of the population suffers from amblyopia, and it's, uh, it's ultimately caused by poor processing in the brain which results in the suppression of the weaker eye by the stronger eye. Now, the the common method of of treating this has always been patching. So you wear an eye patch over the good eye um, and and eventually brings things uh, back back to order. But um, this is is generally more helpful with younger cases and not with older uh, individuals who are suffering from lazy eye. So... 2013, a research team led by Dr. Robert Hess from McGill University and the Research Institute of the McGill University Health Center uh, looked in to, uh, to possible use of Tetris as a means of treating uh, individuals who are suffering from amblyopia. Tetris no? again. Yeah, once more. So they, they found that uh, by distributing information between the two eyes in a complementary fashion, Tetris trains both eyes to work together. Which is uh, which again is counter to previous treatments uh, such as patching. So you're forcing both eyes to cooperate, which increases the level of plasticity in the brain and allows uh, the the uh, the, the uh, individual's brain to relearn, essentially relearn how to look at something and take in visual uh, data. Huh. So they did this by using head-mounted video goggles. They displayed the game dichotically. So one eye was allowed to see only the falling objects, and the other eye was allowed to see only ground plane objects. Okay. So this forced the two eyes to work together. Okay. So you have to be they have to the eyes have to be working together to get the full image. Wait, which eye could see the preview box? Or were they <laughs> playing without the preview box? I don't know. Maybe they were playing without the preview box. Oh so. see this is this is really crazy because in that documentary about Tetris I mentioned in the uh <laughs> in the other episode, it's mm-hmm. called The Ecstasy of Order. Again, I really liked it, so uh, I recommend it. Uh, there's a Tetris champion in there named Jonas Neubauer, and at one point he jokes around by demonstrating his secret weapon, 
and it's pointing his eyeballs separately in different directions. Uh, presumably, I think the joke is so that one can watch the falling block while the other watches the preview box to tell you which block is coming next. I think he's joking, but I'm not positive whether he's, he actually uses this while playing or not. Huh, yeah, because he, be, he would be doing the direct opposite of, of the very thing about the Tetris experience that is being uh, uh, utilized to potentially treat Lazy Eye in this case. Yeah. So uh, as, as far as this particular research goes, clinical trials were uh, at least initially scheduled for 2013, and the company Ambliotech purchased the research findings and licensed it to, to Ubisoft uh, for the creation of Lazy Eye treatment games. Wow, specific, like, therapy games. Yeah. So Ambliotech is currently seeking permission from the U.S. Food and Drug Ad Administration to market uh, the therapy, uh, such as their game Dig Rush, which is is not Tetris. Um, <laughs> and it looks uh, it looks like it's basically like a little digger character that's moving around on a... If it ain't Tetris, I don't care. <laughs> it's certainly less abstract, yeah. But uh, the thing is that it utilizes a tablet and 3D glasses. So you get that uh, what red and blue... Um, you know, disconnect, and you have to use both eyes in concert to see the full picture. Huh. Um, so anyway, they're uh, they're seeking FDA approval for this, uh, according to the most recent report, which was a March 2015 BBC report. Huh. And if you want to learn more about that company and see some screenshots from their game, uh, you can find them at www.ambliotech.com. That's A-M-B-L-Y-O-T-E-C-H. You know, Tetris has been such an interesting subject to do on this show because I I still have the intuition I had at the very beginning. <laughs> I still feel like there's an ancient secret inside Tetris, or, or maybe Tetris is the ancient secret. And after doing all this research, I don't feel any closer to articulating what that, that ancient mystery or that secret is. Well, it's because the holy Tetramino stands outside of our human world. <laughs> And in playing Tetris, we're able to dip into the, the, the deep currents of energy that uh, underlie our reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to come up with some kind of astronomical metaphor. You know, <laughs> or, the, the, or the stars Tetris blocks, but they're not really. Unless you start thinking about it. Yeah, and then there's and no end to it. keep thinking about it. <laughs> and then, wait a second. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah, they are. You ever notice how the Mario on the moon, the, the lunar oceans, the, it's all Tetris blocks? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'll buy into it. Sounds good to me. The big storm on Jupiter? Yeah, just another Tetris block. That's a, what, a, a two by two? Uh, I think ultimately it is a very fast, swirling Z-shaped block. So it's it's mm. a storm because it's the, the troubling Z-shaped block. Those blocks are the devil. <laughs> all right. Well, we know that this is a topic that is, resonates with a lot of people out there because Tetris is just something that's unavoidable in our culture at this point. Everybody's seen it or played it. You have varying levels of experience with it, but chances are you had at least a little bit of time that you were addicted to it. Yeah. Well, so, if you know the ancient secret of Tetris and you understand why it is the strongest potion in the, uh, in the digital sorcerer's uh, potion bag, 
you should let us know. That's right. You can find us at uh, StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is our mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find videos. You'll find blog posts. You'll find links out to our social media accounts, such as uh, Twitter and Facebook. We are Blow the Mind on both of those, and we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tumblr. And if you want to get to us with your personal Tetris stories or any feedback on the show or your thoughts about uh, the cognitive science of gaming and Tetris, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.